This week's TribCast is sponsored by Texas 2036 rolls out 36 goals linked to Texas's prosperity. Support these and help shape our state's future. To learn more, visit texas2036.org slash shaping our future. And the Episcopal Health Foundation. See how the Episcopal Health Foundation is providing funding, loans, and important research in a $10 million COVID response plan for Texas at EpiscopalHealth.org. Welcome to the July 1st edition of the Texas Tribune Tribcast. This is Emma Platoff, and 2020 is officially half over. Um, I'm joined this week by public education reporter Aaliyah Swaby. Hello. Executive editor Ross Ramsey. Howdy. And managing editor Matthew Watkins. Hello. We're going to start off with the latest on the coronavirus in Texas, which against all of our wishes continues to spread at an alarming rate. Yesterday, the state reported nearly 7,000 new cases of the virus, a record high. Meanwhile, hospitals are beginning to fill up, and Texas still hasn't met its goal to hire 4,000 contact tracers. Matthew, what is the latest we're seeing from the governor on trying to get the spread back under control? Yeah, you know, I think last week when we talked about this, we were talking about how his tone was shifting. And uh, since then, we've kind of seen... him move beyond tone and start to take some concrete actions. So he, uh, you know, on uh, Friday of last week, he closed down bars. He um, ordered restaurants to go limit, limit their capacity back at 50%. Um, they, it was, I believe, at 75% below then. Um, and we kind of, you know, saw his kind of first steps. We went from the shutdown phase to the reopening phase, and now we seem to be entering possibly a re-shutting phase here, and that was the kind of first start of that. Um, since then, we've also seen him ban elective procedures at hospitals in eight counties, um, the big urban counties um, minus Tarrant County, and then some South Texas counties as well, um, where the, ca- the coronavirus it seems particularly bad. You know, that's an effort to kind of preserve uh, hospital capacity. And, uh, you know, last week, early last week, Governor Abbott was talking about, you know, the metrics that he was watching, the, the daily positive cases, the number of hospitalizations, the um, infection rate. Uh, you know, those were the three things. And if he talked about them getting significantly worse, kind of redoubling over the next month, then um, that would uh, grab his attention to do more. And we're kind of seeing them kind of well on track to be to do that. Um, so, you know, the question now will be what further steps, if any, is he going to be taking as, you know, the numbers just kind of continue to look worse and worse. Yeah, it kind of seems like we're like half open, half closed right now. I mean, like closing bars, you know, that obviously is is fully closed. And we've seen the, the lawsuits that have come out of that from some of the bar owners um, saying that their livelihoods have been impacted. But restaurants still being at, um, you know, at half capacity, is it? Um, that's not fully, you know, that's not closing down um, places that could be vectors for um, COVID-19. It's not saying only keep your outdoor patios open. It's kind of, you know, an in-between um, of being like shut down and act- and like trying to reverse it and also like appeasing the business owners who clearly, you know, are, are going to be financially impacted by this. 
Yeah, you know, one of the things that the Texas Restaurant Association said um, after Abbott's announcement is that they didn't think this would be, you know, all that catastrophic of a situation for them because most of them were unable to fill their restaurants to 75% capacity anyways because a lot of people don't want to go out. Um, but we are kind of in this situation where some there, there's like uh, – you look at kind of the rules for different places and they don't completely all make sense. You know, you've got, uh, for instance, uh, county officials can now ban outdoor gatherings of 100 people or more. Um, but, you know, if your event is indoor, say a uh, state party convention in Houston that's drawing <laughs> 6,000 people, then, you know, this, the local officials can't do anything about that. You know, even though we hear about how, um, you know, being indoors seems to be more dangerous than outdoors. So, you know, yeah, we're, we're kind of in this weird situation where, uh, depending on what you are and who you are and where you are, the rules are very different. You know, and the controls over this stuff are really sort of blunt. I mean, you can change a restriction and, you know, close the bars, but then you have to wait two weeks to see if that worked. Or you can open all of the bars and then you have to wait two weeks to see if that worked. So it's not really a thing where they can fine tune it. But it is a thing where they, you know, have been really inconsistent. And, you know, we saw the threat of numbers being high in March and all, all the initial restrictions for April were the flatten the curve restrictions. And it actually sort of worked. But you had the effect of everybody looking up and saying, well, it doesn't look like there's any disease like that. Let's go open up the bars and get our hair cut. And everybody went out. And here we are six weeks, I guess, after or maybe more than six weeks after we really opened things up and the numbers are shooting through the roof. So they're closing things down again. The question is whether anybody will sort of heed them this time um, and how long it'll take for these numbers to start going back down if, if they do heed them. I do yeah, think particularly oh, I was just going to say, I do think it's interesting that there are, you know, there've been reports from other states that are in the same position as Texas of having a, a Republican leader and opening up too quickly um, leaning into business interests and having the same thing happen. You know, Florida's in the same situation Arizona is too. Um, I think that a lot of, like I've seen a lot of conservatives leaning on, you know, the media isn't talking enough about California, um, which did shut down relatively quickly, but also is seeing a resurgence. And I think that, you know, my understanding is that some of this is, you know, the result of people opening up too early, but some of it is also that this is a new disease that people just don't really know what they're doing with. And contact tracing has been challenging, even in states like California that have put a lot of resources into it. I don't think that that means that you just don't try to shut down the economy or try to tamp down cases. But it is, you know, interesting to think about, you know, as we're sort of um, critical of the governor of, you know, not leaning in more to doing those things. It's interesting to think about just scientifically that we don't know everything about how to control um, the virus. Hey, just ask your lieutenant governor whether we yeah. believe the scientists or not. <laughs> right. Yeah, Ross, we had a uh, noteworthy appearance from Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick on Fox News last night. Can you catch us up on his, uh, his current opinions on Dr. Anthony Fauci? Yeah, he basically says he's through listening to him. He doesn't really care what he says. Uh, he said that Fauci has, uh, I, I'm paraphrasing, somebody can jump in if they've got the exact quote, but said Fauci's been wrong on almost everything he's said so far, and I'm just not listening to him anymore. To, to be fair, Dan Patrick doesn't have a lot of power in this situation anyways. I to mean, fair, you know, I, I, <laughs> <laughs> I guess to Fauci, 
It's like, I'm not sure Fauci wanted Dan Patrick to listen to him anyways. I don't know. I mean, you know, this is, I think it would be one thing if Greg Abbott were saying this, but, you know, we're not really seeing, you know, aside from kind of grabbing people's attentions and maybe putting political pressure on Greg Abbott, you know, I'm not seeing a lot of evidence that Dan Patrick is really in the room where a lot of these decisions are being made about shutdowns and things like that. You know, a lot of this is in Greg Abbott's hands. And when he talks about the people he's consulting, it's, you know, John Zerwas, Dr. Hellerstedt, you know, people like that, the the health experts that he's kind of pulled together for this. And Abbott's the one wearing the mask when you see them in public. Um, I still, you know, I'm told he's worn a mask a couple of times, but I still haven't seen Dan Patrick wearing a mask. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, Abbott's line certainly a little bit different from the lieutenant governor there. The the line he likes to hit that I always feel like I hear him saying is, you know, we're relying on doctors and data, doctors and data. Um, speaking of who, data. Who is this Dr. Zin data? <laughs> <laughs> We've been talking about kind of the trade-offs of reopening, how much you can mitigate the spread of the virus versus how much you can kind of carefully bring the economy back. We got an early hint about that today with the release of the latest sales tax numbers. What did we learn from that? You know, it's not as bad as it looked uh, in some ways. The numbers June over June, this June sales numbers compared to last June's, and these are a lagging indicator, I should say. It's not just sales from June it's sales that were reported in June. So this is really more about May sales. And May is the month when they opened up. They're um, down 6.5% this year compared to last year. The quarter, uh, the June report, the May report, and the April report um, together is down about 9.7% from the same quarter last year. So uh, Glenn Hager, the state controller, said either in March or early April, that, uh, A, this would be bad. He was one of the very first people to call it a recession, just to put the R word on it, and said that the state budget that we're currently in was going to come in several billion dollars short of what he had predicted a year ago, you know, before the coronavirus and when they were writing the budget. And he said he would make an official revenue estimate sometime in July. Here we are on the first day of July. I don't expect it tomorrow or anything, (laughs) but... um, they have most of the numbers now in hand that they wanted to have in hand in order to make those estimates. And, you know, at first blush, these uh, these late sales numbers don't look as bad as, you know, some people expected them to. Some of, you know, some of the prognosticators were saying this would be in the double digits. A caveat, and it's going to be a year of caveats on this stuff. The COVID numbers are going back up and the governor's talking about closing bars and he's talking about maybe dialing back on some of the loosening of restrictions and that could slow the economy again. And if you're the controller and you're looking at numbers and you're trying to figure out how much economic activity is going to drive how much state revenue, I'm sure he's going to have kind of a gray cloud over that part of the report. Yeah, I think one of the frustrating things about kind of tracking the impact of the coronavirus um, is that all of these all of these lagging indicators, right? So you know, you look at the the um, sales tax numbers. We we all kind of thought it was going to be worse, and and maybe this changes a little bit on like what we thought the impact of Abbott's reopening has had on you know the economy and things like that. Um, on the other hand, you know, you've got hospitalizations, perhaps the most important metric that Abbott is looking at there. And that's also a lagging indicator because it takes time for people who are infected to get sick and then also to get sick enough to go to the hospital. 
And so, you know, you are really kind of like trying to make decisions um, both about the economy and about the, you know, healthcare capacity and the, the situation of the virus, you know, in this state, looking at number, looking at a picture that's not even the picture of what is currently on the ground. And it just makes everything harder to kind of make the right decision here. You know, Abbott is looking at uh, pulling back, you know, say he, he were to shut down things today. Um, you know, very significantly, you'd still probably see hospitalizations, hospitalizations continue to go up for a you know considerable amount of time. Um, it's it's you know going back to kind of what you said, Aaliyah. It's it's a really challenging kind of thing to figure out how to kind of navigate all these things when we we don't know nearly as much as we'd like to. Mm-hmm. We got another kind of important piece of information as far as the pandemic's impact on lives of Texans. Uh, This week, Aaliyah, you wrote about a new report from the Texas Education Agency that found more than one in 10 public school students was disengaged from school during the pandemic, and that this uh, COVID slide effect was only worse among low-income Black and Hispanic students. What else did we learn from that report? Are there any lessons in there for the fall? Yeah, I think that... um you know, it's not a surprise to anyone who has been reading any reporting about um, how the pandemic impacted kids, um, public school kids. Um, I think that the uh, top lines for school districts are that, you know, there were kids who they definitely were not educating at all, who they entirely lost contact with. Um, I think the numbers end up being around like more than 600,000 kids in the state for at least some period of time were either not completing assignments or had lost, they had lost contact with entirely, um, you know, likely some, some combination of both for some of those kids. Um, and so I think that, you know, as the state moves forward and as districts move forward into um, a situation where they'll probably have a lot of local control on what their education process looks like and what their system looks like as they decide to do hybrid systems of having some kids virtual and some kids in person. And as they don't have public health guidelines from the state on what safe in-person school looks like, it's just, you know, it makes it even more difficult for districts to be making those final decisions in a way that makes people not just, you know, happy, but also safe and uh, educated. How much do we know about the kids that they lost contact with? The younger, older, were they particular demographics? Yeah, they're more likely to be younger. Um, so, I mean, that makes sense, right? You, If you're a pre-K kid or a kid in kindergarten, it's a lot harder for you to get on line by yourself. It's a lot harder for you to keep yourself on task, I mean, for more than, <laughs> you know, a minute of time. People who have young kids um, know this. Um, so yeah, definitely the numbers of disengaged kids were higher um, in in early education, and then as you expect, it's mostly it's more likely to be Black, Hispanic, and low income kids um, compared to their higher income white and and Asian peers. Um, so it's I mean you know it's it's not a surprise um, that that's the case, but I think you know we're at a time where we're making decisions on what the fall looks like for kids. And there's not a lot of wiggle room. Like I think I've described it before as a lose-lose for a lot of kids where, you know, do you choose your kid's education or do you choose your kid or your family or your teacher's health? Um, And for some families, that is the decision that they're going to be making on whether or not they should 
send their kids to school. And some families don't even have a choice, you know, like some families, if everyone's working and you have a four-year-old, um, you can't really just, and you only have, you know, you don't have older kids to take care of them. You don't have anyone else. You don't really have a choice. So we know that we haven't heard much yet from the state on kind of the, the floor as far as guidelines for what schools will be doing in the fall. Um, it's kind of a similar situation that's going on right now with early voting for the July elections. Uh, we have a, a resident voter with us, Ross Ramsey. I believe you even got the sticker <laughs> to prove it today. Can you tell us what your experience was like? Uh, yeah, there was nobody there, basically. I went, uh, you know, Austin has a smaller than normal number of voting locations this time. Part of that's because it's a runoff um, election for primaries. And, you know, historically, those are lower turnout affairs. And so if you're trying to estimate the crowd you're going to get on the best day, it's smaller than the crowd you're going to get on the best day in a big presidential general election, for example. So that's dialed back a little bit. It's It was at the Austin Community Center, which is a basic, you know, big gymnasium building in central Austin. And uh, there were three election judges. They were behind those sort of plexiglass salad screens that you see in cafeteria <laughs> lines, right? And um, they had these little um, finger condoms that you could put on so you didn't have to touch the machine. Is that and the then official you... name? That's the official. Sorry. I don't, <laughs> I I don't know what the official need some name clarity is. clarity on that. Point of order. It's, you know, if you were an accountant, they're like those little rubber counters that you use to turn pages. I don't know. They okay. got a, like one finger of a glove. You feel better? Okay. Yes. <laughs> All right. We'll go with we'll go with, we'll go better. with the one the one finger glove. Uh, anyway, so you could go in and vote. You didn't have to touch anything. Um, and you know, the place was clearly set up for a lot of social distancing. As it turned out, I was you know this was I voted probably at ten thirty in the morning and. Um, I was the only voter in the room. So it was me and three election judges on a two in a room the size of two basketball courts. So plenty of plenty of distance. <laughs> it's a good ratio. We all How had did on they masks. give you the sticker? Uh, the sticker was on the, you know, the way you vote in Austin is you stick your ballot in a machine, you vote, you pull the ballot back out, and then you go put it in the thing that counts it, and the stickers were over there for you to grab for yourself. All the judges had on masks. All the judges had on gloves. Um, the only thing that touched them that touched me was the voter registration card and the driver's license. Was your polling place smooth? I know that there were some polling places that they switched to be, you know, to have bigger spaces or to, you know, have proper social distancing. Was that the case for yours? Uh, this place was ginormous. Like I said, it was, you know, two basketball court. It was a room. It, it actually is two basketball courts. It's a big oh. community center. <laughs> and the ordinary voting place for my precinct is a library that's tight hallways and small rooms. So, you know, that might be part of the reason that that wasn't my regular voting place this time. Mm. It's probably easier to find places now when there's no schools and a lot of businesses and libraries are closed anyways. But, yeah. Right. Yeah. But I do right. wonder about the, like, you know, people being able to find those places. If you go to a place and you have one of those signs, like I saw floating around social media being like this, you know, your voting center has moved. Like how many people are then going to follow up on that and go drive to the other place? It's, a, it's a good point. I've been voting in the same place for years and years and years. And, you know, just if I vote on autopilot, I drive to that library. And right. That's not the place this time. Right. Right. And the big 
crunch for election officials. I mean, this July election is relatively low stakes. Not everyone is as excited about the Senate District 14 special election as Ross is. Um, <laughs> we know the turnout is going to be a lot higher in November. And so it may be, you know, more than just one person in that room of two basketball courts. Do we have any sense yet of uh, whether this is an effective dress rehearsal? You know, they're trying to do a couple of things. I mean, you know, we, we're still having the vote by mail fight. Um, and the latest in that, you know, the Supreme Court left open the possibility that we can litigate voting by mail for people under 65 in Texas before the November election. You know, you can lay, lay your own odds on how that's going to go. But assuming that the law stays the same as it is now, we don't have expanded voting by mail. The state's talking about um, extending the early voting period, you know, kind of spread out the voters if they want to spread out. If you want to vote a month ahead and, you know, skip the lines that are going to be there on Election Day, you've got that option. The bottleneck here is going to be, you know, if you had expanded voting by mail, you have to have an expanded mechanism for handling and counting those ballots once they come in. You've got to print them. You've got to distribute them. You've got to collect them back up, and then you've got to count them, and that would be in a much greater number than before. If it's not that, and you have a big turnout presidential election, which are typically our, you know, these are always our biggest turnout elections, um, then you have either the problem of uh, long lines on election day that stretch out, and you know, you've got a crowd issue there. You potentially have crowd issues in early voting, depending on what the you know what the pattern of that is. And I think we're all going to I think we're all should should be ready not to have Election Day um, tallies. Uh, I don't think we'll know on Election Day the results of all of the elections that are up on Election Day. We might know some of them. You know, if it's a blowout and somebody gets nine votes to one vote for the other person, that kind of election is easy. But if there's a tight election. It could be days before you know the result. The Kentucky special Senate election or the Kentucky uh, Democratic primary, I should say, for U.S. Senate, um, I think the count came in a week after the voters were done. Um, so there's a lot here that has to do with the lines that we're going to get anyway, whether there was COVID or not COVID, and then what happens, how much COVID slows things down. You know, uh, people have to uh, stay six feet apart in a line that may be four hours long. Yeah, for reporters saying uh, no election night results is a little bit like saying uh, there will be no Christmas this year, I think. <laughs> you can watch Santa come. You can watch all the presents get laid down, but nobody can see what they are for a couple of weeks. <laughs> it's going to so be we're, great. We're anticipating more finger condoms, is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. You call them that? <laughs> all right. Uh, well, before our next topic, we got two more sponsors to go to. The Poinsett Firm is an Austin-based lobby firm guiding businesses in solving their high-stakes problems at the Texas Capitol. Learn more at poinsett.co. And Educate Texas stimulates creative solutions to key educational challenges throughout the state. Learn more at edtx.org. All right, speaking of finger condoms, for our last topic, uh, Aaliyah, you were up late Monday watching the State Board of Education <laughs> consider updating Texas's uh, sex ed curriculum. This that is really gross. <laughs> what a segue. What a segue. You, you gave me a tool and I took it. I, I apologize. <laughs> Uh, can you catch us up first on what the current sex ed curriculum looks like in the state? 
Sure. So the uh, current standards for how health should be taught in Texas have not been updated since 97. Uh, there was another discussion in 2004 to, um, you know, get textbooks and uh, abstinence-only advocates pretty much won. So they, um, you know, mainly were adopting textbooks that were abstinence-only um, in the way that they taught sex education. Um, Texas is interesting because um, sex ed is not required. Um, health education is also not required for high schoolers. It's required for K through 8 Um so you could go through your education in Texas public schools and not get any information on sexual education. Um, and so this is a very needed update, you know, whatever your thoughts are on, um, you know, abstinence only, if it should be more than abstinence. Um, the fact that it's not been updated since 97 it means that you have a lot of things that are just fully outdated. Um, so what we saw in the uh, in Monday's public hearing was a lot of people coming out and saying, um, you know, we want these standards to be updated. We want um, more standards that are teaching kids about consent, teaching kids about contraception earlier on, including in middle school um, and not just in high school. Um, and uh, we want LGBTQ kids to be included in the curriculum. So we want kids to learn about um, sexual orientation and gender identity. Um, and you also had a smaller number of people come out and say, you know, we want, we think that abstinence only is the safest thing for kids to learn. Otherwise, you know, parents are left out of the discussion and uh, you're pressuring kids to have sex earlier than they're ready to. Um, and you're, you're sort of like asking teachers to promote that for kids. Um, and then the next day, so, so the meeting was, was really long. It ended up being more than, I think, 15 hours of, of testimony. So it went past 1 a.m. on Monday. Um, I think it was more than 250, 260 people um, who uh, showed up to testify and showed up virtually. It was an online meeting. Um, and uh, the board members ask some questions and it's a 15 member board. It's dominated by Republicans. Um, so I, you know, you can see already that there's going to be some level of, um, debate coming up. They're not going to vote until November, but I think you already see where the tension is going to lie. There was already pushback on at Tuesday's meeting from Republicans at including uh, sexual orientation and gender identity in the standards. Um, you know, they, they said that if they included, uh, LGBTQ kids in the standards included those issues, they would have to include everyone, um, which I uh, recognize as an argument for why Republicans push back against ethnic studies uh, in past years. You know, it's like if we have Mexican-American studies and we have to have African-American studies and Native American studies and, you know, all the all the other studies as well, they ended up changing their mind on that over the years. They ended up being pushed to do that um, as it became clear that, you know, the public wanted it. Um, it's unclear what's going to happen down the line for sex education. Got it. And so we'll get a formal vote in November. Do you want to give us a prediction or <laughs> everyone's favorite I don't know. question? They're, they're going back now. They're probably going to go back to the drawing board and have them draw up another draft of, of the standards. So I think you could, you know, come back. There are two sets of meetings before the final vote. So it could look entirely different in November than it looks, you know, in the, in the version that they discussed this week. Is any of this percolating into the 
the state board of education seats that are on the ballot? Is it per, is there any is there any political fallout from this? Do you think? Well, right now the um, the, the key state board of ed race um, that's coming up in the runoff is the um, Robert Morrow race, right. and he's right. not really talking about any issues. So, um, what about? What about in the October races? Is this kind of the kind of thing? I mean, if they're going to vote in November and they're going to, mm-hmm. some of them, I guess a third of them are going to get elected in November. Um, right. Yeah, I I'm not want, sure you know. of the timeline. I think the current board is going to be the board that votes on the sex ed standards um, right. and not the new board. So, okay. um, yeah, in that case, it wouldn't, uh, they, they finish out their terms uh, before the next board gets seated at the beginning of, of next year. All right. Well, that is all the time we have. As always, thanks to Spoon for our theme music and to our sponsors this week, Texas 2036, the Episcopal Health Foundation, the Poinsett Firm, and Educate Texas. On behalf of Aaliyah, Ross, Matthew, and our producer, Michael Ray, this is Emma. Thanks for listening.